This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can find us online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Also at Apple Podcasts and many other podcast platforms. I'm producer Paul Ingalls, today with Priyanka Shankar. Since the very beginning of mankind, people have always been on the move, either in search of basic necessities like food, water, and shelter, or in search of jobs and better economic opportunities. Over the years, people have also been forced to move because of conflict in their region or have been displaced due to climate change. While people migrating is a common occurrence, it is also a polarizing topic in countries around the world. On today's episode, correspondent Priyanka Shankar explores why migration and asylum are contentious and how a country can make peace with migration and asylum. Focusing on how the European Union has been dealing with migration and asylum, in this episode we'll talk to Petra Molnar, a lawyer and anthropologist, trying to understand the impact of surveillance technologies on people on the move. We'll also be talking with Bram Frouse, the head of the research platform Mixed Migration Center, also known as the MMC, in Geneva. He has been analyzing migration movements around the world and also criticizes how the language used to discuss the movement of people in the media and amidst political groups often fuels warlike narratives, which have to be addressed. Lastly, we will hear from Vasco Malta, the head of the UN's migration agency, IOM, in Portugal, to understand how Portugal is helping people seeking asylum and helping them integrate into their new home. Mr. Malta also explains how countries can tackle the polarizing aspects of migration along borders. Here's our correspondent, Priyanka Shankar. Every time a group of people line up along the external borders of a country, debates heat up among government leaders with respect to migration and asylum procedures. Over the past few years, many people from countries like Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Eritrea, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and others have fled conflict in their regions in search of refuge. Taking treacherous journeys across the Mediterranean, many of them aim to apply for asylum and live in Europe. But for leaders of the European Union, ghosts of the 2015 European refugee crisis continue to haunt them, making them delay proactive responses on asylum for people seeking refuge. I caught up with Petra Molnar, a lawyer and anthropologist who is trying to understand the impact of surveillance technologies on people on the move. But before we talk about borders and surveillance, Petra, I'm really keen to understand why exactly is migration such a contentious topic in Europe? Migration has been in the news and, and in the public discourse for many years now, and it is kind of thought of as a contentious topic, partly because it's able to capture people's imagination in a really specific way. But I just want to say migration has been with us since time immemorial. People have always been crossing borders and, and moving around, and it's really become a political topic in, in recent years because um, our, our leaders and this kind of shift to the right side of the political spectrum has been able to use migration as a contentious topic to garner votes and to really shift the conversation on these issues in some pretty nefarious ways. But at the end of the day, there's people's stories at the center of this and migration has always been happening and will continue to happen as long as there are people on the planet. You know, again, it's, it's real people, it's families, it's 
humans who have reasons why they need to move. A lot of them are geopolitical in nature. And the fact that the, the conversation has become so pointed and polarized is precisely because we talk in kind of grand theories or, or these ideas, these flows, masses, crises, but we've forgotten that it's, it's really individuals at the center of all of this. And on that note, despite having a common asylum system, migrants have also become victims of violent pushbacks to third countries or back to the countries they fled from. Now, the EU has also been fortifying its borders through border patrols and funding the construction of walls and border technology. But do you think such border surveillance techniques actually work? With this kind of turn towards, you know, making borders sharper and harder and and, and turning towards enforcement and again, weaponizing um, the kind of conversation around migration, states are kind of increasingly turning to more sharper solutions. So physical walls, we're seeing them crop up all around the world. But also different types of, um, you know, technological kind of solutions that we're also seeing, you know, we're seeing all sorts of surveillance equipment all around the world, really problematic uses of tech, like this newly announced, essentially what are called robotic dogs or autonomous weapon systems, really, that can be changed to be used for border enforcement. I mean, those are the kind of robots that have been used for um, policing and for, for other types of uses. Um, you know, we're also seeing uh, automated decision making and artificial intelligence make its way into immigration and refugee processing around the world. But again, the, the idea, the kind of motivating factor behind this is that increasingly as the world is kind of becoming more polarized, states are feeling the kind of pressure to enforce borders and, and also to make big money out of this, because I think that's a huge piece to this that we don't talk enough about. The fact that private companies and the, the kind of big tech sector is increasingly making inroads into border enforcement because it's lucrative business. Some other scholars have called it the border industrial complex. But there's a lot of big money to be made in, in all these technological experiments. And unfortunately, these tech experiments then are playing out on, on really vulnerable people's lives. People who are crossing borders, who might be wanting to be reunited with their spouses, who are claiming refugee status. I mean, you and I could be affected by this too, right, as we cross borders. So again, it's this kind of real turn to what some people have called techno-solutionism at the expense of people's human rights and dignity as they're trying to, you know, exercise their, their freedom of movement and, and all sorts of other human rights that are impacted too. And also, you know, what some academics have called the criminalization of migration, this kind of conflation or uniting of the idea that somehow because people are crossing borders, they are criminal or terrorists unless proven otherwise. This, this link has been made really, really firmly in all sorts of jurisdictions and countries across the world. And I, that is a huge motivating factor to why border enforcement and technology and surveillance is really being increasingly used because countries are able to say, well, we need these tools to prevent terrorists from coming in, from preventing crime, from, again, this kind of fear mentality, the fear of the other. Um, that's really, really strong at the center of all these border logics. But again, it gets us away from the foundational conversation that we need to have. I mean, how are people's human rights protected? Um, what kind of dignified procedures do we have in place? What kind of oversight and accountability mechanisms do we have? Because when we operate from a place of fear, it really obfuscates the humanity that needs to be at the center of the conversation. Petra, you spent some time analyzing border tech along the U.S.-Mexico border. And do you think that the United States has also been learning how to deal with migration from the European Union? For me, what's really useful is I, I take a comparative approach in my work. And, and I'm working on a book on these issues as well that takes a comparative approach. Because I think sometimes when we zoom in too much, 
we don't kind of see the broader picture. And these these issues are really of a global nature and, and countries also like to learn from one another and a lot of money and technology kind of changes hands. And so, you know, for example, you know, the U.S.-Mexico border and the U.S. generally has long been a test bed for all sorts of surveillance tech. And then it kind of filters through and, and for example, the European Union then learns. But it also goes the other way, you know, being based in Athens and, and looking at the kind of fringes of Europe and what's happening there, particularly with the kind of rise of these prison-like refugee camps that are replete with all sorts of technology. I mean, that's a model that the EU has signaled that it wants to replicate, but also the U.S., so there's clearly a lot of knowledge exchange that happens. And not only that, but there's also all sorts of other players in, in the mix. You know, we know that China, for example, is a huge geopolitical player when it comes to the development of artificial intelligence and all sorts of surveillance technologies. Um, Israel is a major player in the kind of surveillance economy. And a lot of the technologies, for example, that are tested out in the West Bank on Palestinians are then imported into the United States and, and used along the U.S.-Mexico border. For example, the Albert system towers that are in Arizona, where I just was a few weeks ago in February of 2022. So it, it really goes to show that this is a global move and a global kind of political economy where different actors are able to really push forward um, what should be innovated on and how much money can be made in all of this. So having a comparative approach, at least for me, is really useful because it, it can be quite overwhelming too. you know, how just how vast this kind of um, system is. But it helps to also underscore that we need to think globally when it comes to strategies of resistance and advocacy and, and knowledge sharing as well. When do you think border surveillance is a good solution? Do you think it can be in certain cases? It's a good question because it, it forces us to kind of re-examine both concepts, both border and also surveillance. Because even something as obvious seeming as a border is actually changing these days as well. You know, we're moving away from the kind of geographical understanding of, of a place as a border, but it really gets much more complicated. Borders can be our phones if they're used by governments, for example, for tracking. They are changing because of artificial intelligence and surveillance. And so it really changes the way that we can think and talk about these concepts and surveillance as well. I mean, you know, it's a historical practice that oftentimes kind of overburdens particular communities, communities that are racialized, marginalized and kind of pushed to the margins of vulnerability. So really, I think we need to ask ourselves, what is it that we're enforcing with border surveillance? Is it is it a system uh, of power hierarchies that we are OK with? Or are there other ways that we can think about protecting people's human rights and dignity? while also solving the needs that a particular country and a state can have. I know this all sounds a bit theoretical, but I think at the end of the day, it all goes back to what kind of human rights and civil liberties are at stake here. We're talking about privacy rights. We're talking about equality rights. We're talking about the internationally protected right to seek asylum, along many other human rights as well. And it, it's, not, it's not just a theoretical exercise, but it also becomes very practical when we start to unpick how kind of power operates in this space. And it's always really powerful actors like the state or the private sector that's able to kind of set the agenda while individuals and communities are the ones that are kind of caught in the mix. So I guess what I'm saying is we really need to have some radical conversations about what we are comfortable with as a society to introduce at the border and immigration and refugee decision-making and whether we are actually okay with using, for example, increased surveillance or automation there, or whether we need to have a conversation about increasing funding for lawyers or um, different types of services, or, or even actually tackling the kind of geopolitical reasons why people are forced to migrate in the first place. 
And these government decisions in countries like Greece are not really democratic, right? That's right. And that's a big part of it, too. It's not really a democratic process with these technologies. States make all sorts of private-public partnerships. All of this stuff is rolled out. Like, for example, the robo-dogs that we saw um, that are going to be introduced at the U.S.-Mexico border and all sorts of artificial intelligence that's already in use in the European space. A lot of this is not part of the public discussion at all. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the communities that I work with, folks who are on the move, refugees, asylum seekers, but citizens as well. Oftentimes people find out after the fact when something's been introduced in the kind of surveillance panopticon that that people have called it. So that's part of it too, transparency and accountability to individuals and communities. That's really become an afterthought, um, which, which really needs to be part of the conversation. On that note of continuing conversations about migration, how do you think countries can find solutions to make peace with migration and asylum? I mean, I think, you know, making peace with migration and, and asylum is, is something that really is central to the human experience because people have been moving since time immemorial. And, and there's a reason why we have established norms and laws and frameworks for asylum and refugee processing. And so... We, we really can't have it both ways. If, if a country and a state is a signatory, for example, to the Refugee Convention and understands that it wants to uphold certain human rights in, in this space, then it needs to do so and not just kind of pay lip service to it and then turn around and use all sorts of, I don't know, Israeli um, surveillance technology or, or automation without public discourse. So it really, I think it, we, we have to go kind of back to basics and, and look at what's really at stake, a foundational human right to move and migrate and, and seek a better life somewhere. That is, that is a, a hallmark of, of humanity. And, and we've really kind of moved away from that. So in order to make peace with migration, I actually think it, it's always been part of the human experience. And so it's nothing to really be made peace with, but rather something to honor and something, you know, to, to see as a, as a positive because immigrants, migrants, refugees, people on the move bring so many benefits to societies. And, and I think, if anything, that's exactly what our world needs. We need new ideas. We need new energy, new passions, and more complexity. And unfortunately, it seems like we are kind of moving away from that. But I really, really hope that we can kind of turn it around and, and really see the joys and, and the, the glory that migration can bring uh, to the world. In the law in particular, we kind of strive to get away from complexity sometimes. And, you know, we talk about um, kind of really rigid categories, you're a refugee or you're an economic migrant or you're an immigrant, but humans are complicated. Migration is complicated. We all carry such complex lives. I mean, if you look at any individual life, you will see so much complexity, so many kind of, you know, dissonant issues that happen at the same time. And, and I think we need to hold that at the center of, of the conversation. We are all complex. Migration is complex. And, and we need to honor that and respect that in a way that we, we, we kind of deal with it. You know, I think there's examples um, of, of maybe particular programs like Canada is, is, you know, one of the leading countries in terms of resettlement. Um, there's all sorts of countries in, in Europe, for example, that really try and make sure that people are supported as they're going through their asylum procedures. But actually, for me, what's really inspiring is the civil society responses and the kind of allegiance building and solidarity movements that are happening among, for example, migration justice organizations or prison abolitionism organizations and, and the kind of ways that information is shared and resources are shared, it, it, that really gives me a lot of hope. This kind of grassroots response to these difficult issues, I think we really need to start there and, and see how those, those responses can be strengthened. That was Petra Molnar, a lawyer and anthropologist, trying to understand the impact of surveillance technologies on people on the move. 
You can hear Priyanka Shankar's entire interview with Petra at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Coming up in a moment, we'll hear from Ram Frouse. He's next after this short break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can find us online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Our podcast is available at Apple Podcasts and several other platforms as well. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with Priyanka Shankar, who's looking at the ongoing evolution of migration policy around the world. While border surveillance in migration systems isn't really the pathway to making peace with migration and asylum, our next guest, Bram Frouse, is the head of the migration monitoring group Mixed Migration Center, the MMC, headquartered in Geneva. He says the language used to describe displaced people also needs to change. Here again, Priyanka Shankar. Bram, you've been researching migration across the globe and been very critical about the language used to discuss the movement of people in the media and amidst political groups. Do you feel it feeds into a sort of war narrative? Yes, it is. Um, and we, we've seen it a lot um, also before the 2015 so-called crisis already, um, also sometimes by leaders outside of Europe. Uh, I think one example was uh, the late Libyan leader uh, Gaddafi who was talking about turning Europe black if he wouldn't uh, get the funds that he was requesting from the the European Union and Italy. And then a a very recent example we've seen in late 2021 was on the border between Poland and Belarus, where the Belarusian uh, President Lukashenko sent a few thousand people basically to the borders with the European Union, initially Lithuania, later Poland. And then in the response, European leaders were referring to a hybrid war and being under attack which all signaled that you can actually hit or target a powerful bridge block like European European Union by sending a few thousand people. And I think we see too much of that kind of language. We also still see a lot of water metaphors being used, uh, like floods and and waves of migrants, uh, both in media, uh, but but by leaders and and politicians as well, uh, often in relation to climate change, for example. Language around the root causes of migration, as if it's a problem that needs to be cut by the roots to address also a lot of reference just to do migrants instead of people so yeah there's there's a lot of negative narratives that all fuel um, this idea of um, migration being out of control uh, and that that strip people uh, of their agency besides language when it comes to migration governance and migration management in europe and across the world A global compact for migration, or the GCM, 
was signed in 2018 by 152 countries. But is the GCM being respected or do we see a north-south divide with migration management resurfacing? I think there is to some extent a north-south divide. Um, it's been there for a long time uh, in global migration governance in, in different agreements that were in place before where migration is almost regarded as an, as an issue to be addressed in the global south. Um, and then also in general, a sort of mistaken distinguish between countries of origin and countries of destination, uh, the former being in the south, the latter being in the north. And that's a very simplistic uh, portrayal of reality, because in reality, most countries are countries of origin, transit and destination at the same time. And what I'm worried about is what we're currently seeing in the Global Compact for Migration, uh, which was adopted in 2018, is that we in a way see a resurfacing of this divide. There's a lot of countries who declare themselves champion countries of GCM implementation, but with a few exceptions, all of them are found in the global south. And if you look at the type of uh, projects that are being funded and implemented as GCM implementation, those are all projects in the global south. And that in a way signals that countries in the global north um, don't have to do any GCM implementation as if their migration policies are already um, well-established and perfect and, and the issues are elsewhere. And I think that that is a misrepresentation of reality because there's a lot of things that countries in the global north need to do as well. For example, when it comes to finding alternatives to immigration detention, uh, better return systems, saving lives, which is, a, which is a whole objective in itself, where we actually see efforts to save lives being hampered in the Mediterranean. So I think the, the need to improve uh, migration policies and implement the Global Compact for Migration is as applicable to states in the Global South as it is to states in the Global North. Is Europe actually trying to make peace with migration and asylum? In November 2021, we launched our annual mixed migration review. Uh, and We always compile a list that we call normalizing the extreme, uh, which is an overview of all kinds of harsh and, and negative uh, approaches towards refugees and migrants. Uh, but last year, for the first time, we introduced what we felt is a necessary counterpoint called resisting the extreme, uh, listing positive, uh, more progressive examples or alternatives for how you can also deal with migration. Um, and I think that is important because there are lots of good examples out there uh, all over the world that we can, we can learn from. Uh, and I think Portugal is one interesting case. Um, for, for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, they provided residency to irregular migrants to make sure they have access to healthcare. Uh, they're now discussing scaling up regular migration pathways between Morocco and, uh, and Portugal. Um, there's a German coalition government who uh, agreed upon a number of 400,000 migrants they will need every year to just keep the German economy going. Uh, so also scaling up regular migration pathways. Um, Italy regularizing migrant workers, um, but also outside of Europe, uh, Colombia, recognizing uh, there's a large population of millions of Venezuelans there who are likely to stay uh, and granting them a regular status. Uh, countries in Europe like France, Belgium, the Netherlands providing good access to COVID-19 vaccination to irregular migrants. So I think we see a lot of alternative approaches, positive approaches. Um, I think we need more of those and, and learn from those. We've been listening to Bram Frouse, the head of the Mixed Migration Center, and you can hear Priyanka Shankar's entire interview with Mr. Frouse at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all of our episodes, in fact, dating back to 2002. 
While migration is contentious across Europe, many countries have also found solutions to make peace with it. We now zoom in on Portugal. Portugal's been commended by several human rights and migration experts for its proactive response to helping people in need claim asylum. Vasco Malta from the UN's Migration Agency in Portugal joins us to talk about how Portugal's been successful in implementing its migration policies. Here again, Priyanka Shankar. A successful migration and integration policy has been challenging for many countries, not only in Europe, but also across the globe. What is Portugal's secret? People tend to say that Portugal uh, is seen as a country where uh, integration policies of migrants are a success. And I honestly believe that uh, the fact that all Portuguese system is built up to promote the participation of migrants in the decisions that affect them allowed Portugal to have a very sustainable system. But that's not the only reason. There are other reasons behind this alleged success uh, of Portugal uh, on migration policies. Uh, first of all, I would say that uh, there is a, a migration history of the country. So there is reciprocity as a principle since we have in Portugal uh, uh, more or less four, four, to four, four to five million Portuguese living abroad. So if you have people living abroad and you are a migrant, you know how it is to be a migrant. Also, and, and this is also very important to highlight, is that uh, somehow there is a very strong political consensus, uh, uh, meaning that the benefits of immigration are almost clearly perceived for almost all political parties. I could say that the benefits of the immigration are still very clearly perceived, especially because according to different uh, barometers, for example, the last one that I remember, uh, only 3% of the Portuguese population considered immigration as a problem, as an issue. Finally, two other reasons behind this alleged success is the fact that in Portugal there is a interministerial coordination of the topic uh, of migration with the clear leadership on the integration agenda. So meaning that the politics and the government in Portugal, its focus uh, when we talk about the migrants on their integration, and that's also very important. And of course, finally, uh, there are a lot of partnerships and multi-level governance, meaning that immigrant associations and also municipalities are always part of the solution and uh, always uh, normally the, the local delivers of the national frame, framework on the integration of migrants. So the combination of all these factors, uh, I would believe, is the reason behind the success of Portugal in the integration of, of migrants. Has it been easy implementing this welcoming migration and integration policy? Or were there any challenges along the way? So regarding the biggest challenges uh, on migration we have in Portugal, I would put it in two ways. First of all, we need to uh, make sure that we have the conditions to attract migrants. Please bear in mind one specific thing. In Portugal, we are the third country in the world with the uh, highest percentage of old people. And also our, our birth rate rates are compared to countries that are technically at war. 
So actually, we need migrants in Portugal. So the first challenge that we need to uh, put uh, out front is the fact that we need to attract migrants to our country. This is one biggest uh, challenge. And another one is, of course, the integration process. So uh, we need to make sure that in Portugal we have the proper conditions to uh, access to employment, to housing, to health, to the ones who decide to start a new project of life in this country, namely Portugal. So, as I said, in one hand, how to attract migrants, especially the high skills migrants, and it's a big challenge, and also uh, how to integrate them when they decided to come is the other challenge that we face here in, in Portugal. Europe is a safe haven for many people fleeing conflict from the Middle East, North Africa, Eastern Europe, and even Central America. Often countries like Greece, Italy, and Spain become the recipient countries because of their geographical location next to water bodies, because it's easier for migrants to enter these places through sea and also from land and air. Does Portugal help these countries accommodate everyone who needs asylum? Since 2015, uh, Portugal has responded to the migration flows in Europe with solidarity. And of course, by having an active participation in the EU emergency schemes, relocating different asylum seekers and beneficiaries of international protection coming from different countries in Europe, such as Greece, Italy and Malta. So, be clear, Portugal has upheld its political commitment to responsibility sharing and, of course, proactively contributing to intra-EU solidarity uh, in Europe. The fact is that until two years ago, Portugal had for many, many years a, a negative migratory balance, meaning that there was always more Portuguese going abroad than migrants coming in. This fact combined with, I already mentioned, uh, the circumstances that Portugal is the third country in the, in the EU with the highest percentage of the, of, of the people with more than 65 years old, somehow alerted to the Portuguese authorities for, I would say, a dark scenario in the years to come. To be clear, uh, this migratory balance has stopped in 2018 and 19, showing, of course, that Portugal started to receive new immigration flows and became a more attractive destination for foreigners. And at the same time, uh, the economic growth fostered Portuguese to stay. So this is somehow a background that may explain what Portugal did so far. So that's actually an excellent question since uh, the government of Portugal has concluded a bilateral agreement with Greece for the relocation up to 1,000 refugees that are currently in Greece. So this agreement serves as a basis for the implementation of a first pilot relocation scheme, which targeted 100 beneficiaries. So refugees and asylum seekers that actually were relocated in Portugal until October of 2021. So this project that was also implemented by IOM intended to provide a comprehensive relocation support uh, to those beneficiaries identified by the government of Portugal and Greece for the relocation in Portugal. So specifically on Greece, as you already mentioned, I, I would say that Portugal has shown solidarity 
And I believe that this uh, should be seen as an example to other EU countries to do the same. What would you say is the best way to make peace with migration and asylum? It's a difficult question, but I honestly believe that if you uh, allow the participation of migrants in the decisions that affect them, somehow you uh, create a social cohesion in the society. Make sure that you hear the migrants' needs, the migrants' problems when you build up the solutions that you want to affect them. There is a saying in Brussels, uh, I think it's it's connected uh, with the handicaps movement, says something like, uh, nothing about us without us. I think this is a key uh, success factor when you want to build up social cohesion, when you want to build up peace between the majority of the population and the migrant population. So besides giving uh, the necessary tools to these persons to be integrated, you make sure that you build up a system where uh, the needs of this person can be heard. And this is a, a way to make sure that you have social cohesion in the society where migrants feel that they are heard and their voice is, is important. And somehow this helps for all the society, the majority of society and the migrants to, you know, to be integrated as a whole and contributing all of them uh, to the success of the nations. So there is a, in Portugal, there is a program running called the Family of Next Door, according to which every year, two families that don't know each other, one with a migrant background, another with a national background, and they simply sit each other at the same table. Both of them share a, a food dish that somehow uh, can represent their country. So this is, of course, a very simple example, but you cannot imagine the powerful results that are coming from this very simple example and learning about the culture of the other country in the same time, of course, is very powerful in helping the integration process. So it's not only about the government. We always, all of us need to do our share. And why not just, you know, uh, invite the family of next door to sit down, eat, listen, share a little bit of my culture and learn also a little bit of the other's culture. And maybe this is a very simple example, but I honestly believe that can bring very powerful results. That was Vasco Malta from the UN's Migration Agency, IOM, in Portugal. You can hear the entire interview Priyanka Shankar had with him and get more information about him and all of our guests at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, we'll discuss how Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022 changed migration policies. And hear again from Petra Molnar on it. Do stay tuned after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with correspondent Priyanka Shankar, who's so far helped us understand why migration is contentious and how some countries have tried to improve their migration policies. But when Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 2022, a new phase of migration policymaking emerged in Europe. Priyanka filed an update by talking again with one of our earlier guests, Petra Molnar, a lawyer and anthropologist who's been studying European migration for many years. Here again, Priyanka Shankar. In February 2022, the Russian Federation brutally invaded Ukraine, killing thousands and displacing millions. Many Ukrainians fled to the neighboring European nations of Poland, Romania and Moldova. Some of them also boarded trains and planes to Western European nations, the UK and the US, in search of asylum. While countries in Europe were quick to display solidarity and welcomed many of these people with open arms, migration experts were also critical about how people of colour and people from minority communities fleeing Ukraine continued to face discrimination at borders. The European Union also announced that displaced Ukrainian citizens would be eligible to temporary protection in the EU nations and would not be required to apply for asylum. Petra Molnar spent a couple of weeks monitoring asylum procedures along Poland's border with Ukraine. Petra, Poland has been one European country whose government has always supported an anti-refugee narrative. But what really changed with the war in Ukraine? Because right now, it is one of the countries accepting the largest number of displaced people. It's been quite remarkable um, and really heartbreaking what's been happening in Ukraine uh, since the Russian occupation in, in late February of 2022. Um, and I had a chance to actually go and, and do some human rights monitoring at three different borders um, that touch Ukraine, so Hungary, Slovakia and Poland, for the purposes of, of learning more about the situation, but also to gather evidence of racial discrimination of people fleeing Ukraine who are non-white or people of color or medical students and foreign students, for example, that are living um, in Ukraine. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, it's it's a really complicated thing because it's really beautiful on one hand to see the amazing solidarity and the kind of help that has been extended to Ukrainian refugees, and rightly so. Um, it just shows that it is very possible to have a soft, kind response to a horrific uh, crisis like this. You know, we would see um, massive amounts of diapers and food and clothes and, and housing opportunities, you know, collected for people. And yet, the amazing level of solidarity also highlights this two-tier system that unfortunately is uh, replete in, in most immigration policies around the world. And again, with this, with this ongoing situation in Ukraine, uh, it became very clear that this kind of help was extended mostly to, to Ukrainian refugees, mostly white refugees, people of color, people fleeing um, uh, Ukraine who have a, an equally legitimate uh, reason to, to get out because their lives are at risk. A lot of people of color, Roma communities uh, have been reporting incidents of racial violence, of not being able to get access to the same resources um, and, and things like this. And Poland in particular is a really important case study, I think, that highlights this kind of two-tier system because 
on its southern border that it shares with Ukraine, you see this again, this amazing show of solidarity, this huge amounts of help. And yet at its Polish-Belarusian border, where I was actually earlier um, in late 2021 to monitor the situation there as well, you still see this corridor that is inaccessible to human rights monitors and journalists. There's still people trapped there, mostly people from Middle East who are trying to seek asylum in Europe. People are being forcibly pushed back, which again is illegal under international law. And they're oftentimes just living in horrific conditions along this border. So really, we're talking about just a couple hours drive of difference. And it again highlights this, this system of, of just uh, arbitrariness that is inherent in the way that, that borders are experienced. So again, a lot has changed because of the situation in Ukraine. But I think it also highlights that it is very possible to show solidarity and to show help to people fleeing war. But it's done very selectively. And we have to, again, be proud of this solidarity, but critique all the sharpness and the racism and the discrimination that is unfortunately still part of the equation um, at the same time. Criticism often does hold governments accountable. And you're right, we've seen the media and NGOs highlighting Europe's two-tire migration system with this crisis. But will the criticism trigger EU leaders to ensure people fleeing conflicts from other nations also get the same treatment? I mean, it's a bit complicated to answer that because I think, you know, at the end of the day, we have to critique border logics generally. And and the border as a concept is inherently violent and exclusionary and arbitrary. Some people can cross while others cannot. But I do think that given the attention that this disparity um, in terms of treatment has received, there's definitely been, um, I think, responses that are promising. But again, I think that's why we need to talk to real people, real people who are experiencing the discrimination, the racism, and also the solidarity. Again, there's two sides to this complicated situation. But again, by bringing it down to the personal experience and, and then thinking about how we can make sure that the response that is put in place is done equitably and fairly for everybody, I think that that's really the key. But I think time will tell as well, you know, the longer the situation goes on, and this is something that we're all worried about in this space, the longer the situation goes on, the more there is a chance that just solidarity and help generally will fall away as as receiving countries get tired, as communities get over overburdened with demands and, and lack of resources. So it's not that far-fetched to imagine that even, you know, white Ukrainian refugees who are going to be leaving are going to be similarly impacted by this kind of violence. So again, it's it's just it's a beautiful moment in time, but it's a it's a fragile moment, and I think again we need to focus on the good in the situation while calling out the importance of making sure that what we do is is actually grounded in human dignity and 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 kindness when it comes to these responses. On that note, going forward, how will this crisis affect peace-oriented migration policy in Europe and elsewhere in the world? I think the situation in Ukraine really feels a bit tectonic. You know, it's really changing not only the the global world order, but also countries' responses to uh, people needing to flee war. But I think, again, it's too early to tell how um, far-reaching potential changes might be. And and I think it's, it's really important to look at it from a global perspective, because, yes, the situation currently is happening in Ukraine and in Europe, but it has ramifications and repercussions all over. I mean, there's already been instances, for example, of Ukrainian refugees trying to enter the United States, 
And there was some confusion about the whole issue around Title 42, where people are moved from European, uh, sorry, from US territory back to Mexico to be processed. So Ukrainians were allowed to go while others, for example, were not. Even people who fled Ukraine, but who might not have Ukrainian passports. Again, it highlights this hypocrisy and this arbitrariness of the border regimes that are so inherent in the way that we manage uh, the movement of people. So I, I would like to be hopeful that this is a bit of a game changer because, again, I think it has shown that it is very possible for countries to step up and, and be there for people in time of need. But unfortunately, and I think, again, you know, coming from someone like me, I've been working in this now for over a decade, I remember how horrific the situation in Syria has been, right? And their response, while there was, of course, also solidarity, let's say in 2015, 2016 in Europe, when many people were coming, it really quickly faded away and was replaced by, you know, anti-Arab sentiments, blatant racism, criminalization of migration, including of people who are helping. So it's really, really easy, I think, for these situations to turn. And we really need to be vigilant to, to make sure that, again, we use this global moment as a way to increase, you know, the kind of human rights respecting policies that we need in our immigration system and to really put the human back at the center of all of this, because at the end of the day, it's people who are fleeing war who need help. Clearly, this war has made us realize that countries have the ability to make peace with migration and asylum and embrace open borders. While it is still open borders for a particular group of people, would you say there's a border policy which would enable countries to treat every human being equally? In, an, in a utopia, um, I would advocate and do, in fact, advocate in my work for an abolishment of all borders and, and coming up with a creative, kind way of living together as a global society. That is something I think that we all have to aspire for because, again, border logics are inherently violent and discriminatory and they impact all of us. However, realistically, we are nowhere near that utopia. And so I think in present day, we can still really work towards making sure that, that border crossings, migration management, and again, the experience of, of forced migration or dislocation and relocation can be fair, equitable, and really grounded in human dignity. That is something that is very possible and, and needs to be strengthened for people uh, from all over the world. And we see that it is possible when people kind of put their minds to it, as the Ukrainian crisis is showing us. So I would say, you know, there's kind of two, two ways to look at it. Working towards the abolishment of all borders, while in the present day, uh, thinking about ways to make the current system more dignified and kinder for, for people who need to flee conflict and war. Again, Petra Molnar, lawyer and anthropologist on migration since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Again, you can hear more from all the guests in our program today and all of the programs in our series dating back to 2002 by visiting peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. There you can see photos of our guests. You can read and share transcripts. Follow links to other resources on this issue. You can sign up for our podcast. You can order CDs. You can also make a donation to help keep this program going into the future. Come visit us at peacetalksradio.com. In addition to those of you that can make a donation to our project, support also comes from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Thanks always to our broadcast partner, KUNM, at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Priyanka Shankar, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. 
With little time left in our hour, let's go back to our top 30 peace songs of all time. We compiled them in a 2013 edition of Peace Talks Radio that you can find on our website, peacetalksradio.com, under the 2013 season. But let's listen to one of them. This is The Peace Song from Jesse Colin Young out of 1976. Man's power is growing and growing People, we gotta stop 
Jesse Collin Young's The Peace Song from 1976, and here's a bit of Curtis Mayfield's We Gotta Have Peace from 1971. We gotta have peace To keep the world alive And war to cease
part of Curtis Mayfield's We Gotta Have Peace from 1971. And again, if you want to check out our entire list of top 30 peace songs from our episode in 2013, go to the 2013 tab on our website and click on the September episode from that year. I'm Paul Ingalls. Do stay well. Thanks for listening.